It's a term that's been around since the Second World War, and it describes events that dot human history. But recent discoveries in Canada has brought back the conversation of whether the term could be used for what happened to Indigenous peoples on this land. And the definition of the term genocide might just fit. I'm Adam Toy. And I'm Dave McIver, and this is Why. It's a debate that last saw a national discussion following the release of a report from the National Inquiry on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. At the time, Michael Spratt wrote in Canadian Lawyer magazine that Canada's treatment of Indigenous people fits the legal definition of genocide. But retired Senator and Lieutenant General Romeo Dallaire, who headed up the UN peacekeeping mission in Rwanda, said he's not comfortable with the use of the term in the context of what happened in this country. David Webster is a history professor at Bishop's University and in Sherbrooke, Quebec, and joins us. Thanks so much uh, for your time, David. Thanks for asking me to be here. So, David, your uh, expertise or, or part of your, your area of study is in South Asia, Southeast Asia, and we wanted to, to, to bring you on to speak about the term genocide. Let's start there. Let's start with some definitions. What is the definition of genocide, and where does that term come from? Because I understand it's a relatively recent term, a relatively new term. Well, yes, the, uh, the word genocide hasn't always existed, and there have been genocides before the term genocide was coined. Uh, the word was first started to be used in the 1940s, and it's really um, in response to the Holocaust happening during the Second World War against the Jewish people um, in Europe that a survivor of that genocide, Raphael Lemkin, came up with the concept, the term genocide, which comes from the Greek for killing of a people. So along with mm. homicide, killing of a person, genocide, the killing of an entire people or an entire nation or the attempt to wipe out an entire nation. Because it doesn't just mean killing. There's a, that's one way to talk about it. But the genocide convention, the original definition of the word, which is drafted by Lemkin and passed in re- a revised form by the United Nations come uh, in 1948 is there's genocide means any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part um, a specific group as such. And it can, killing is the first one. Yes. Killing members of the group, but there's also causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, uh, deliberately inflicting conditions of life that are designed to destroy a group wholly or partly. Mm -hmm. Uh, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, forcibly transferring children of the group. So the application of that term has to be understood really broadly, and you can't just limit that to only mass killings, although, of course, that's an important part of it. And that was a really important part of what Lemkin and the United Nations in the 1940s were trying to say about this term. Mm -hmm. It needs to be understood broadly as an attempt to an identifiable national or religious or ethnic group. So David, how does genocide apply in the research you've done? Cambodia is one of the best known genocides. And this is, we're talking about during the 1970s, a short, sharp shock of emptying the cities of intellectuals, um, targeting opponents of the regime. Some people call it an auto genocide because the victims are Khmer people, Cambodians. Mm -hmm. And the architects of the genocide are also from the same group. 
but they're trying to really wipe out a certain understanding of Khmer or Cambodian identity um, mm. and turn the country back to, as they said, year zero, make everything fresh, wipe out the past, literally erase history in many cases, right? So right. that's a, South, a famous Southeast Asian case from the 1970s. The other genocide around the same time, close to the same region is uh, Timor-Leste, then known as uh, East Timor. So a small former Portuguese colony invaded by Indonesia in 1975, where you can see things like forcibly removing Timorese children from their family, where you can see conditions of life imposed upon the Timorese people by the Indonesian military regime designed to destroy them as a separate nation, as a separate identity, um, where you can see mass killings of uh, over 100,000 people in a, in a small country of fewer than a million people. Um, so mass killings, but mass killings is one tool of a wider intent to destroy the Timorese as a separate national group. Um, in that case, that country regained its independence. In the Cambodian case, the government that committed the genocide was removed. Um, and these are events in the past, but they still have effects in the present. And that's when you're studying Asian history, it's hard to ignore the continuing effects of mass atrocities, genocide, human rights violations, and so on in the quite recent past. Mm -hmm. So that's how I come to genocide studies, I suppose. When you described what happened in Cambodia, you said it was a short, sharp shock. It was very quick. Does the length of a period of time for these acts affect the definition of genocide? There is nothing in the definition of genocide that defines how short or long a time period we're talking about. Mm. The best known genocides, um, Cambodia, the uh, Jewish Holocaust under Nazi Germany are in a defined and relatively short time period. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the Holocaust and uh, um, killings in Cambodia, they do draw on a legacy of um, um, racism and anti-Semitism, but the actual genocides are in a relatively contained period, right? Mm -hmm. But nothing in the Genocide Convention says a genocide has to be a, a contained short period. Um, we can talk about slow genocides as well that have happened in uh, a number of instances, including in uh, North America. Let's talk about some of those those instances. Um, if if take one, uh, just pick one that's top top of your mind, and and let's let's uh, explore how um, kind of a slow genocide, so so to speak. Uh, how that uh, can or has played out uh, in the past. We are discovering or people are discovering new unmarked graves on a regular basis so that the estimate of how many children died in residential so-called schools in Canada, in what's now Canada, is rising all the time. And we're going to have an estimate perhaps not in the thousands, but rising into the tens of thousands of people who have died. Mm -hmm. It took place over not a short period of time, but over the entire history of these schools, which goes from the 19th century up to the 1990s, when the last one closed, and is part of a pattern of crimes committed against Indigenous peoples in what's now Canada, which includes, yes, killing members of the group, um, causing harm to members of the group, which we see in intergenerational survivors, which includes 
inflicting conditions deliberately on members of the group, such as uh, famine or removal of children, definitely forcible transfer of children. Um, the conditions that define genocide are met in this case, even though it doesn't consist of a large number of people being killed in mass over a short period of time, often in front of international media. Mm -hmm. um, just it's slower. It's done in the shadows and not in the full light of publicity, but it's no less real because of that. So mm -hmm. attacks against indigenous peoples, whether that's in what's now Canada or in uh, Xinjiang against the Uyghur indigenous people in uh, the People's Republic of China, these are not mass killings in a short period of time. These are what you might call slow colonial genocides. And we see them in many places, sadly. Mm -hmm. One thing that I find interesting about the definition from the UN Genocide Convention in, 40, in 1948, the definition of genocide is, is that it's acts committed with intent to destroy or in whole or in part a national, ethnic, racial or religious group as such. The word that I find fascinating in there is intent. Um, and I think that that can speak to, and correct me if I'm wrong, that, that really can speak to uh, or, or surpass any sort of time range that these events may happen in. It's, it's, it's the acts that are committed with that intent. Uh, do we, uh, it, I, I know that your, your, uh, your expertise is, is more in, the, in Southeast Asia, but from your readings of, of, of what's happened here in Canada, does that speak to, and you spoke to it a little bit, but, but tell me more about how um, what the Indigenous peoples here in Canada have experienced in terms of that intent to uh, destroy in whole or in part their uh, national uh, or th them as a group. There's some key words there, right? And you've said intent. Uh, in whole or in part is important as well. Mm. Genocide doesn't mean killing every single person that's a member of a group. It means trying to destroy that group with intent, that group as such, in whole or in part. The intent is being debated a lot right now. So Carolyn Bennett, the Minister of Crown Indigenous Relations, um, stated in response to the most recent unmarked graves of 751, probably, um, people in uh, Cowessas and Saskatchewan, um, she said it was a terrible mistake. And that implies that there isn't intent, right? That bad things have happened in Canada's past and we're trying to grapple with them and um, we must do better. That's the line from the federal government and Carolyn Bennett is one of the main people expounding that line, right? She's not the only person, of course. Um, so the question of intent, but that's historically inaccurate. Um, the intent is very much there. It was not, you can't call it a mistake because in the terms that the government of Canada set for itself, it was fairly successful because, so can I, can I share a quote? Mm -hmm, please. Uh, so um, John A. MacDonald, when the school is on the reserve, the child lives with its parents who are, and apologies for this word, but I'm citing the original quote, who are savages. And though he may learn to read and write, his habits and training mode of thought are Indian. He is simply a savage who can read and write. It has been strongly impressed upon myself that Indian children should be withdrawn as much as possible from parental influence. And the only way to do that would be to put them in central training and justice schools. 
where they will acquire the habits and modes of thought of white men, i.e. the goal stated publicly by the first prime minister of Canada is assimilation, is to destroy indigenous nations in Canada as such with intent to do so. And he's not alone. I mean, the, we can't say Sir John A. Macdonald did anything by himself. That's not how historical events develop. Mm -hmm. So I'll just give you a second quote, if I may, which is uh, mm -hmm. Duncan Campbell Scott, the uh, deputy superintendent of Indian Affairs. So as such, he's essentially head of the Department of uh, Indian Affairs, which has become Crown Indigenous Relations, mm -hmm. um, as well as Indigenous Services. So Duncan Campbell Scott tells Parliament, our objective is to continue with these residential so-called schools, to continue until there is not a single Indian in Canada that has not been absorbed into the body politic and there is no Indian question. That's the whole object of this. So the stated goal of Canadian government officials is to destroy indigenous nations within Canada as such with intent. It's, it's bizarre to see current Canadian federal government ministers and officials deny that fact when that is the stated intent of the people who presided at the time, right? Mm -hmm. um, the time when the, when the situation in the residential uh, facilities was at their, at their worst, the goal is stated as assimilation, as destruction of a people. Mm -hmm. So the intent yeah. is pretty clearly there. And that's just basic historical research. And that's just giving credit to the people who said these words that they're telling the truth about their intent, right? In the final report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, they used the term cultural genocide. By using cultural genocide, was the TRC trying to split that hair of intent? It is hair splitting in some ways, but I'll say two things. Number one is, uh, according to Murray Sinclair, one of the three commissioners, of course, of the TRC, um, they weren't allowed to use the word genocide. So they said cultural genocide instead. Mm. Um, the terms of reference that they were operating under did not allow them to make that finding. Um, however, I'll also add, um, there's no qualification of types of genocide in the convention. Um, right. There's no suggestion that cultural genocide is a lesser, a lesser crime. Cultural genocide is simply a form of genocide. And it's like saying that the Montreal Canadiens are a hockey team versus the Montreal Canadiens are a good hockey team. You're simply adding an adjective, mm. right? Um, you're not diminishing the force, I think, of the word genocide. If you say the genocide, the type of, ge the form that the genocide took is cultural. It doesn't reduce that it's genocide. It's still genocide. So mm. you can't go back to the genocide convention and say it's lesser. Um, it's simply adding an adjective and elaborating from my point of view on what's happened. So they talk about, um, they talk about a slow genocide in uh, the former Belgian Congo in Africa. It doesn't mean it wasn't a genocide. It just means it took longer for it to take longer for it to happen. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we can't get hung up on that. And that's, I think that's one of the reasons that the subsequent commission on uh, missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls simply use the word genocide to describe a pattern of Canadian state action uh, against Indigenous peoples. How does the reckoning 
of uh, a history or, or historical event of genocide in a country, let's say Cambodia, or you also mentioned East Timor, how does that generally affect those citizens? And how is, what's that process like, if you can give us sort of a, a, an overview of that? Yeah, well, the usual mechanism is um, sometimes when, when there's a serious individual crime, you deal with it through the court system. Mm-hmm. But when you've got a situation where an entire society has been involved in um, a, a, severe, uh, a severe conflict or is emerging from a brutal military dictatorship or something, then the most common uh, way to deal with it is this idea of a truth commission, right? Which is right. started off in Latin America, took place most famously in South Africa. And it's something that for years and years was applied in the global South and then was adopted as a model in Canada, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so if we look at South Africa, there was very, which is the first commission to use the term TRC, Truth and Reconciliation Commission. They wanted to tell the truth to remove the lies that everybody in South Africa had been taught about the country's past um, based on a system of structural racism, which as everybody knows is called apartheid. Mm-hmm. Um, so the truth about that system to stop telling false history and to start telling accurate history and to allow victims of this racist system of oppression to tell their stories and be recognized for them. Um, And following the truth, reconciliation could come, which would be bringing people together after a very severe conflict and allowing the nation to heal and people to live together with good relations with one another. And that's, um, East Timor is one of the more successful truth commissions in the world. Um, And, you know, I know this one reasonably well because I'm on the uh, International Advisory Committee for their follow-up body, which is a really important thing. You have to follow up a truth commission. Mm-hmm. You can't just have a report land on a government desk with a five-volume FUD and then disappear, right? It has to be followed up and implemented. Um, so in Timor, they were very much about correcting the lies of the past, the false histories that have been taught, telling a history based on the actual lived experiences of the Timorese people. Um, at the village level, they would bring victims and offenders together. They would roll out what they called the big mat, which is a traditional indigenous ceremony in many parts of Timor Leste, East Timor. Um, and they would allow people to tell their stories and they would give a space for a perpetrator to apologize. And they would not insist that the victim of violence had to accept an apology They didn't Mm -hmm. say reconciliation meant forgiveness. Mm. Um, So in all these cases, truth is step one. Um, A a nation, a society grappling with its past and accepting that crimes were committed and accepting that schools have taught this incorrectly for years is is crucial. And that's the the precondition for the reconciliation to happen. Um, More recently, we talk about the most, uh, the truth commission that's dealt with historical issues the most, like really going back into the past and mm-hmm. dealing with a slow um, situation of slow crimes against humanity, I guess you might say. Then we talk about the Indian Ocean Island of Mauritius. Mm. Um, they set up what they called the Truth and Justice Commission. Mm. And they said that people who had suffered under slavery and indentured servitude during the British colonial period had to um, be given forms of reparation. And reparation, not meaning just money, but meaning repairing the wounds of the past Hmm. and that after the truth was told there had to be not reconciliation as such 
although that was welcomed, but also justice. So I think the idea of a truth and justice commission is very uh, interesting there. And I think that could provide a way for Canada to look at its past. Um, but really you have to think of this process as the first, the truth has to be told and accepted by perpetrators and by society as a whole. And then, and only then can you start talking about healing, about reconciliation, about repair of the past. Mm -hmm. And a truth commission deals with, it's not something for the victims to say, oh, you've apologized and I forgive you. It's a situation where survivors of whatever the situation might be are not the only ones who have to do the work. Right. That mainstream society needs to do the work. So if I cite Murray Sinclair again, you know, we've drawn in, in our truth commission report, we've uh, sketched out uh, a mountain. We've described a possible route for Canada to take to the top, but this is a job for Canadians to decide how they're going to get there. It's not a job for us. It's a job for the country to take, to to do uh, implement. I wanted to get back to the word genocide in conversations with, with some folks, the the term genocide, it's, it's shocking especially if, if, if they're not in, in, uh, as, as uh, steeped in some of the history of, of genocides around the world. And um, I don't know if you're a cinephile, but Quentin Tar- it's just, it's something that comes to mind as far as the use of the word gen- genocide. Quentin Tarantino, in his movies, uses the F word a lot. And it can lose, you know, the impact of that can be lost as you go through, as you watch one of his movies. And, and, and I'm wondering if there's that same sort of, if you, if you have any concerns about the same sort of desensitization about the G word genocide in, 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 in its use, either in media or in you know, everyday conversations. I mean, there, okay, there is a risk of that, but it's not as great as the, as the risk of denying truth. Um, when the literal definition of genocide is met, then I think it's important to call it what it is. Um, we, uh, we say in French, call a cat a cat. Um, <laughs> actually describe something by its accurate name. It is shocking. Um, we think of genocide as something that happens over there, somewhere else. We think of genocide as something that um, shocks the conscience of humanity, but I think the conscience of Canadians is being shocked now. And I think there is value in naming something for what it is, and there is value in grappling with that. Um, I think if we look at Germany or Cambodia or Rwanda and how they've dealt with the fact of a real genocide in their past, we have models for how Canada could do an honest reckoning with its past. I think it's important to recognize that genocide is not something that's just done by ignorant foreigners, that genocide is something done by polite Canadians and genocide is something justified by progressive establishment figures in Canada. Mm -hmm. Um, And that denying it also has force. Denying it downplays the deaths, the ongoing harm to families and communities, the reality of the situation and the reality of our own country's history. So it's important to call something what it is. And it may mean that we find we live in an age of genocide and that the world is not as progressive and wonderful as we maybe think we are. Um, And 
we should face that and we should reckon with that. This is Why is produced by me, Dave McIver, and Adam Toy. It's a national radio show and a podcast. You can reach us by email, thisiswhy at globalnews.ca and on Twitter at thisiswhy. If you like what you hear and want to hear more, make sure you subscribe to This Is Why so you never miss an episode. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing, tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Wear a mask and get vaccinated. We'll see you soon.